The following is a sermon from Christ Fellowship Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit cfcherrydale.com. So if you've got a copy of the Bible, open to Acts 3. We're going to continue our teaching series uh, on the, the family values that we hope mark the church at Cherrydale, now Christ Fellowship, as we gather together around these uh, values that we believe are defining of, of us as a community, but the only way they're defining of us as a community is if they're defining of you as an individual. So this morning's value is we share good news. Now, uh, since it's a snow day and snow days give us opportunity to do things that we might not otherwise get to do, we're going to have a little test to start this morning's sermon. So you're going to turn to your neighbor and you're going to tell them the first three family values that we've considered at Christ Fellowship. Tell your neighbor, here are the three values. Ready and go. And if you're at home watching, you can do it on your couch. Have fun. <clears throat> little show of hands how many got we pursue christ we pursue christ oh this is pitiful all right um next up we live connected how many of you got that one all right now this is this is indicative of brandon totally a mark of brandon how many remembered last week we love our neighbors Oh, wow. All right. So we got we to double down on We Pursue Christ. I know out of sight, out of mind. It's been three whole weeks, right? What are you doing? Uh, we Pursue Christ. We live connected. We love our neighbors. This week, we share good news. And we're going to allow Peter's interaction in Acts 3 to frame this. And this week, I was, uh, I was thinking, because this topic, the, the nature of we share good news, really is, uh, is derived where we get the, the language of evangelism, right? That's what we're speaking of. We're, we're good newsers. We're sharing the good news. So if you've hovered around our community for the last year or so, you know it's something that we've pressed on consistently. Uh, we've taught on, we've provided training, we've attempted to exhort in the work of evangelism. So I was praying and thinking, like, actually, what gets people moving? Because really the last thing I want to do is just consider the text this morning and not really angle for transformation. That's what we're, we're after. And, and ultimately the answer in a church is that it's the Spirit that gets people moving, right? It's the Spirit of God. But what is the Spirit of God doing? What are the combination of factors that the Spirit of God does in our hearts when we actually start moving somewhere? I think there are three ingredients. If you've got some notes, these are actually going to frame out our sermon this morning. But three ingredients. I think you have to be convinced that whatever we're talking about is important first. You've got to be convinced. I'm sorry. First, you've got to be convinced that it's right. Second, you've got to be convinced that it's important. And thirdly, you've got to be convinced that it's realistic. Let's spin back through those. So you got to be convinced that it's right, that whatever's being said from the pulpit is based on the truth of God's word. And this thing then is, is clear and it's unavoidable. It's the right thing to do. Secondly, you've got to be convinced that it's important. You've got to be moved. Something's got to stir inside of you that says this thing really matters. It's not an incidental extra, but it's at the core of what it means to follow Jesus. And then thirdly, you've got to be convinced that it's realistic. You've got to be moved strategically. You've got to be convinced that this is something that I can do. I might not be great at it. 
It might scare me to death. I might have some doubts and a lot of learning to do, but there's a step that I can take toward obedience. And you got to have all three of those factors working together. You got to actually believe this is the right thing to do. You got to believe it's important. You got to have your heart stirred. And then you got to have your hands and feet engaged with there's actually something I can do. Perhaps healthy eating and diet is the best place to start with this, right? We got to we got to we got to believe that the effort and work to eat well actually makes a difference in how I engage in the world. That pulling through Bojangles and getting the spicy chicken biscuit combo with fries and a sweet tea like I did this morning, like that's not a good thing every day. That's going to go bad for us. We got to be convinced intellectually that that's not the thing that we want to do consistently. Then most of us have to have some pressure. We got to be convinced that it's important. Like I've really got to do this. Now, often this comes from a doctor, right? If you don't do X, things are going to go bad for you. So somebody puts a little press on you to say you might want to consider these things. And then you got to have a plan. I can do something that's going to get me moving in the right direction. Hence, couch to 5K, right? We need these little apps or prods that suggest that the spicy chicken combo couch sitters can actually move toward something that is active. My goal this morning is to convince you of all three to fan the flames of the Spirit's activity in your life that convinces you that being a good newser is right, it's important, and it's something that you can actually do. I think Peter gives us encouragement to this task as these three facets of transformation are coming together in his life. Back in Acts 2, if you remember, we've read and considered this clear presentation of the gospel that he delivers post-Pentecost as God sends his Spirit to his people exactly as he's promised. Here again at the end of chapter 3, Peter delivers a message following the interaction that Brandon had us consider last week with the lame man. Let's read the entirety of the address and then we'll come back together to consider. So Acts 3, beginning in verse 11. While he, this is the lame man that's been healed, was holding on to Peter and John, all the people were utterly astonished. And they ran toward them in what's called Solomon's colonnade, or portico. And when Peter saw this, he addressed the people. Fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the Holy and Righteous One, and you asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead, and we're witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him perfect help in front of you all. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders did also. In this way, God fulfilled what he predicted through his prophets, that this Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, whom he has appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. You must listen to everything he tells you. And everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and those after him. 
And they foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God has made with your ancestors, saying to Abram, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up this servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. If you consider and just hold these texts up, the themes of Acts 2, the sermon that he delivers publicly after Pentecost, and what he's doing here in Acts 3 have many of the same overtones. Specifically here, the context for us, just glance back at Acts 3, 7 through 10, is this act of healing. The man in verse 8 jumps up and starts to walk. He enters the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. And so Peter takes this opportunity to speak and to testify to them of the good news of Jesus. Remember back in Acts 2, it's actually this same pattern. The Spirit empowers the people, and they begin to speak in different languages to the people who are gathered around. Everyone's amazed. Some people think they're drunk. And Peter says, let me serve to explain to you what's happening. Let let, let me take this activity and give some words to it, which helps us see a big idea right off the start as we consider the nature of we share good news. This, that every action that demonstrates the good news is meant to be an opportunity to speak of the good news. So every activity that's happening in the the book of Acts, as we can continue the story, that holds up the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, God putting things back together again, every one of these opportunities, these signs and wonders that are being done, provide an opportunity for these early apostles to put words to this activity. The healing here isn't the point. It's meant, the healing is meant to allow them to put a spotlight on Jesus, to use their words to declare, here's how this has happened. The awe and wonder isn't the point. It's meant to position the people to hear the message. Donnie rightly points out that this language of awe and wonder that's used in Acts 2 and Acts 3 should call to mind for us the scene of the Exodus story. As God is miraculously delivering his people and this awe and wonder at God and his greatness is meant to, in both instances, cause people to know and worship the one true and living God. So once again here in the book of Acts, we have God breaking into human history, doing something that astounds so that his nature and character can be put on display. And the way that happens in the book of Acts and following is through gospelers, through people who put words to the activity of God in time and space. This is what Peter does for us, and he combines the three facets that I introduced with. The right message, the right motive, and the right next step. The right message, the right motive, and the right activity, or the right step. First, let's consider the right message. Think back with me for a minute. Where did the sermons in Acts 2 and Acts 3 find their beginning, find their orientation? Remember the first time we see Peter beginning to put these pieces together? 
It's a scene back in Matthew's gospel that's pretty famous in Matthew 16. Jesus is asking people to describe their perception of his identity. He says to his followers, hey, who do people say that I am? We could read the scene in Matthew 16. Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say he's John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against it. A simple message back in Matthew 16, but one that's quite profound. They're saying that Jesus is one of the Old Testament prophets, and the outspoken Peter here says, No, no, he's, he's more. He's the Messiah. Peter's developing understanding pointed to Jesus as the promised one who was going to come to save God's people. He's uniquely God's son. The Messiah who was promised long ago, the one who was going to come to reverse the curse and make a way for sinners to be restored to God. If you glance back at the Acts 3 paragraphs there, you notice how many times Peter points back and says, this is just what the scriptures told us. The prophet said that this was going to happen. Exactly what we see working out in time and space is fulfilling what God has promised from long ago. And then Jesus in Matthew 16 makes a promise. What does he promise Peter? He says, on this, on you, I'm going to build my church, which is exactly what we see him doing in Acts 2 and Acts 3. He's building his church post-Pentecost on, not on Peter as the human instrument, but on the message of Jesus the Messiah. It's this word that Peter is proclaiming in its infant form, its juvenile form in Matthew 16, more robustly teased out and nuanced in Acts 2 and then again in Acts 3, formally applied through the Spirit's work in Acts 10 and following as Peter begins to grow in his understanding of Jesus as the Messiah. In many ways, though, the message of Acts 2 and Acts 3 is the same message. Notice the Messiah language in Acts 3. Look in verse 13. Uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant, Jesus Christ. Then down in verse 18, in this way God fulfilled what he predicted through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. Verse 20, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, whom he has appointed for you as the Messiah. Down in verse 24, in addition, all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and those after him and also foretold of these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant of God that he made with your ancestors, saying to Abram, and then he quotes the promise from Genesis 12, all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. So what's the point that Peter's driving at? Time and time again, he's pointing back to this Jesus is the one that God has promised. He's the promised Messiah. I don't want to overcomplicate the message in such a way that, a lot, that causes us to miss the main point. 
Peter here shares good news, and the good news is the person of Jesus Christ. There's much more that could be said about the text of Acts 3, but let's not miss the fact that what Peter does not do is give them all sorts of schemes for religious performance. He doesn't give them prescription for how to address their sin through behavior techniques. He doesn't uh, even write the book of Romans for them in spelling out here. He simply holds up Jesus as the promised Messiah. He's holding forward to them the good news of the Messiah and making the clear point that God promised the sending of the Messiah and that this was the demonstration of his faithful love for his people. Which perhaps helps us spin the way we often think and speak about sharing the good news. Maybe you, like me, feel like the Bible is a really overwhelming book. And when you hear people speak of the gospel message, you feel a little bit awkward because perhaps you know people who can nuance and slice thin the gospel in ways that feel beyond you. There's an unceasing depth to the word of God, brilliance and beauty that you're never going to fully plumb in this life. And they're really bright people who've spent their entire lives thinking about this book. And they can trace the story of God with clarity and accuracy that may feel a bit out of reach for you. The encouragement I have this morning from Acts 3 is Peter could have said more, couldn't he? There's surely more insight into Jesus, his unique nature. After all, Peter's been with this Jesus for an extended period of time. And yet, his Acts 3 message, as well as his Acts 2 message, is simple, clear, and relentlessly Jesus-focused. He just holds up Jesus. The work of sharing the good news is the same task for us. It's simply holding up Jesus. It's being able to ask and answer the question for yourself and for others, how is Jesus good news? How is Jesus good news? And anyone, any one of you listening this morning who's had a genuine conversion experience, you're not just kind of marked by an identity marker of Christianity, but you've actually been converted, then the reality is you best be able to answer that question. Your very identity this morning hinges on the fact that Jesus is good news for you in some clear and distinct way. You might get a bit overwhelmed at trying to remember chapters and verses. You might feel a tinge of guilt at growth you know that needs to take place. Welcome to the club. But if you have Jesus and you believe that this message is right, then there is an answer to the question of how is Jesus good news for you? Jesus is who he says he is. He's done what he says he has done. And he's coming again to finish his promises. So for you, if Jesus is good news for you, you have good news to share to others about how Jesus is good news also. Don't lose heart, friends. If the message is right, if God has convinced you of the rightness of this word, then you have an answer to how is Jesus good news. But notice Peter continues with some sense of a, a right motive that's driving his summary statements here as he holds up Jesus. Notice Peter was moved emotionally at the importance of this message. The nature of Acts 3 is 
is personal. There are personal appeals at the outset. Notice back in verse 13. As you're reading the, the biblical text, you kind of note these uh, parallel phrases and the way that, that words you're reading are like, hey, I heard that before, I heard that before, I heard that before. Notice in verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. Verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. Verse 15, you killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. Speaking to the Jews, he is incredibly pointed in his approach. The message matters because you, the people who are right in front of him, might miss this Messiah. In fact, in recent history, Israel illustrates that they might actually be opposing the outworking of God's plan. And so he continues in verse 16, by faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him perfect health in front of you all. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. In verse 16 and 17, Peter points to the necessity of faith. It's this faith in the name of Jesus that has made this one well, and so too, it is faith in the hearers that will be the means by which their sins can be forgiven and these seasons of refreshing can be poured out. The good news of Jesus requires a response, one marked and defined by faith, and this is what Peter presses to his hearers. The phrase, uh, when I'm reading the, the text, one of the ways I ask God's Spirit to help me is that, say, give me a phrase, give me an image or an idea or something from the text this morning that's just going to stick with me through the day. The phrase, as I was reading this week at the end of verse 16, has been incredibly sticky. He's given you perfect health in front of you all. I was zeroing in on that phrase, that language of in front of you all. Peter's making this point. The Messiah was crucified right here in front of you all. And now this lame man is being healed right here in front of you all. And we'd assume words getting around that God's poured out his spirit, Acts 2, and the people, the nations are hearing and responding to the message right here in front of you all. Which connects a dot, at least for me mentally, when we consider sharing the good news. How is Jesus good news for what's right here in front of us all? Or more specifically, to connect a dot to Brandon's sermon last week, how is Jesus good news for what's right here in front of my neighbor? This answer, again, cut teeth in a world of 30-minute gospel presentations and alliterated outlines, gives me um, sticky uh, palms, and I get real nervous and apprehensive that I'm going to miss something or leave something out. What, where I want to press us this morning is that being good newsers, being people who value sharing good news, is simply being able to answer the question, how's Jesus good news? And then to be able to put it in front of somebody. How's that Jesus good news for, for you? How's Jesus good news for what you're experiencing, whatever's right in front of us? Better to think, what's right in front of me and what's right in front of the person that I'm talking to? 
Don't believe that we have ready opportunities for this in our day. Consider what is right in front of you and everyone that you encounter. Is what's right in front of you fear? How is Jesus good news for people plagued by fear? Is it marital discord? How is Jesus good news for marriages on the rocks right in front of you? Is it job insecurity? Is it uncertainty of whether the next PPP loan is going to be approved and our business is going to survive? How is Jesus good news for lives that seem to lack meaning and purpose? Is it shame and guilt? How is Jesus good news for people whose heads down in shame, guilt related to their sin? And let me suggest to you this morning that that's actually a really helpful way to think about your own challenges. When you're afraid, when you have marital discord, when you're plagued by job insecurity, when you feel shame and guilt, God is giving you a great chance to learn how Jesus is good news in those areas. And the more you intensify your appreciation for when I feel afraid, Jesus is good news because you're training yourself to share the gospel. You're gospeling yourself, and therefore you're going to be well positioned the next time a coworker says, I'm really afraid to not roll out your 30-minute alliterated outline, but present how Jesus is good news when you're afraid as well. Whatever is right in front of us, can we step into that with a message of why and how Jesus is good news? He got the right message, Jesus and him crucified. He got the right motive. We've got to have faith in Jesus as the only true good news that's vital for all people in regards to what's right in front of us. And then he takes the right step. Consider the end of verse 19 and verse 20, kind of sandwiched in the middle of this text the big landmine of our opportunities to be good newsers and the clear turn of this passage. He says at the end of verse 19, therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And it it would be way easier if Peter modeled something that was a little softer or gentler in this passage. Hey boys, what you really need to do, like just go make a public apology about what you did to Jesus. Or let's get it together, let's work hard to build a society where the things that happened to Jesus won't happen again. Or hey, we're gonna be traveling on and there's probably gonna be some more lame and sick people on the way. Would you just kind of sync up with us and like go travel and kind of help us care for these people? Since you've kind of blown it here, why don't you go with us and maybe you can kind of work off your credit to God? That's not what he does. He lasers in on the state of their soul and calls them to repent from sin and turn to God. Personally. On the one hand, it's a rebuke. You are a sinner in need of forgiveness from God. On the other hand, it's a demonstration of love. You are a sinner and you can find forgiveness from God. In both cases, it's personal and penetrating. And here the question shifts to a personal appeal. Rather than merely, how is Jesus good news for what's right in front of my neighbor? 
it becomes a question asked of them. Neighbor, is Jesus good news for you? Is Jesus good news for you? Friends, uh, and spin this back to me. Put a mirror to my own life. When's the last time you ever actually asked someone if Jesus was good news to them? When's the last time we put feet to the message that if we are in Christ, we would say is the most central, orienting, defining facet of all of human existence? When is the last time we held out the good news of Jesus to those that that we claim to, to love? Is Jesus good news for you? Perhaps it's that simple question over chicken wings tonight at a football game. (laughs) Or on a walk in the snow, pulling sleds. Or enjoying this afternoon as the snow melts. To rather than being paralyzed with the inadequacy of what you do or do not know, to merely be able to ask questions Like, is Jesus good news for you? Can I tell you why he's good news for me? Maybe this is the place that more of us tap out than anywhere else. We get the message, we get the motive, we sing, let the nations be glad, but calling people to faith and repentance seems to be as far off as waking up tomorrow and running a marathon. I could never be bold enough to do that. Before you give up, I want you to consider for a moment our case study this morning. Who's the sharer of our good news? He's the guy we read about in Matthew 14. Immediately, he made the disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, and he dismissed the crowds. And after dismissing the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. And Jesus came to him walking by the sea early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking by the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, have courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and he came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And he began to sink and he cried out. Lord, save me. It's the same one that we meet a little bit later in Matthew 16. From that time on, after Peter's great confession, he began to point out to the disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes to be killed and to be raised on the third day. And Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but about human concerns. He's also the same guy that we meet in Matthew 26. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl approached him and said, you were with Jesus the Galilean too. He denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about. When he'd gone out to the gateway, another woman saw him and told those who were there, this man is Jesus the Nazarene. And again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know that man. After a little while, those standing there approached and said to Peter, you really are the one, since your accent gives you away. Then he started to curse, swear with an oath. 
and said, I don't even know that man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. I wonder, I've wondered this week, if the soaking wet Peter sitting in the boat after sinking could have envisioned himself doing Acts 2 and Acts 3. Could the one who the Messiah called Satan ever have imagined being so bold again? Could the man who'd likely forever hear the echo of those roosters' crows ever have dreamed that God would use him to say, I do know that man again? Maybe the distance between you and this level of boldness isn't actually as far as you think. Depraved sinner, denier, rebel, you're in good company with Peter's words. In fact, that's what this monthly table reminds us all of. It reminds us of our inherent unworthiness. It points to the fact that we're saved because of the sacrifice of another. It reminds us that Jesus is the central message of the good news and that by his grace, we are invited to his table. And like most family meals these days, the table reminds us that there are seats that are empty. There are those right now who have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good through Jesus Christ. And as Paul will remind us, the means by which they will hear is the testimony of those who are sent. This month, as you in the wake of Peter's message come to the table, let it be a reminder to you of all the ways that Jesus is good news for you. And let it stir your heart to be one who declares that good news to others. This morning, we're going to have some time and space to pray. And obviously, is not being able to predict the snow overnight. Um, we've, we've got space for people to spread out and um, anticipating a more crowded room than we have. We've got going to have pastors up front and in the back. We're going to have a couple of deacons that are kind of dismissed by row as we go. There'll be people in the front and the back kind of letting you out so as we don't crowd the table and provide uh, congestion. We want to invite you to come to the table to receive the elements from a pastor to head back to your seat and there to receive the elements at a pace and time that's appropriate for you. We will not uh, come back together and read the text as a big group, but rather you're going to have time and space to pray. Maybe if your children are in the room to pray with them and then to receive the elements. And after everyone has gotten uh, the bread and the juice and taken those elements, uh, we'll stand and sing together. So if you'll just watch kind of the directions of the room, and use the space that God has given us to consider how we can be people who testify to the good news that our actions are testifying this morning. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, there'll also be pastors up front. Pass on the table and come and speak to one of us about how you can know and follow Jesus as well. Let me pray for us, and then we'll open the tables for you to come and consider. Our Father, we bow thanking you that you purposed in your 
divine plan to send the Messiah, to send Christ, the one who would do for us what we could not do for ourselves, the one who would live the life that we could not live, die the death that our sins deserved, and rise victorious over Satan's sin and death through the empty tomb. We thank you that we who can approach this table are testifying by our actions, that we believe that that is a good news message, that something has happened to us that addresses the greatest issues of our life, how we can be restored to you, how we can experience these seasons of refreshing. This month, as we consider that reality at the table, would you stir our hearts to be people who, beyond the walls of a Sunday morning service, can openly testify, as Peter does well, of the beauty of the Messiah and call those in our lives to faith and repentance so that they can be restored to you. Would you stir our hearts to that task as we consider the sacrifice of Jesus together now? We ask for his sake. Amen.